The Lord be with you. And this week I want to look at a text, but uh, it's a little bit more than a text, a few verses. But it's, I believe, very, very appropriate for where many of us are standing right now in history, whether you are listening here in the U.S. or in other parts of the world. The world is pretty much in the same situation all over. And so these words, I believe, are the word of the Lord to us tonight wherever we find ourselves. And I want to take this word from Exodus in chapter 14. Exodus in chapter 14. And in verse 10, the, the Israelites are at the Red Sea, and they're looking out across that expanse of water And then verse 10, and Pharaoh, the tyrant of Egypt, drew near. And the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt... Have you taken us away to die in this wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Okay, Uh, that is at least the portion of scripture, it's well known as far as the story goes. Just to put it in context, which I'm sure most of us know, but these people that we're looking at here had been slaves in Egypt under this monster tyrant who carried the title of the Pharaoh. He was the king of Egypt, but uh, much more. He what was one who saw himself, the people saw him as deity, they worshipped him as a god, and he had enslaved these Israelite people, and then Moses had come under the authority of the Lord, let my people go, and there followed what is known as the ten plagues. And it's very interesting, uh, every one of those plagues addressed one of the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh. And in every plague, a whole system of demon gods came crashing down. And finally, at the Passover, the blood of the lamb on their door, they leave Egypt. And approximately three million of them left Egypt. 
And as they come to the edge of the trackless wilderness, the cloud, which would be um, opaque, it would be a glorious sight, um, a radiant sight, but it looked like a cloud from a distance. It was the immediate and real presence of God with the people. And so led by the cloud of God's immediate presence, they trek into the wilderness. And they went um, not on a whim. It wasn't something that God just decided to do uh, about nine months before. No, it was on a foundation of the covenant promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of these people. And he was now keeping his word, fulfilling his promise, and bringing them out of Egypt. And so on the firm foundation of the covenant word of God, with behind them a track record of God's love power that refused to allow the dictator to hold these people, and led by the immediate presence of God, they go off into the wilderness. And the cloud leads them, you see. You have to take that into account. The cloud of God's presence led them and led them off what would be sort of the main direction to where they were going, led them off and into sand dunes. And if it was a desert before, now we are really, really in the desert. And as they meander through this a seemingly purposeless journey, they suddenly end up, I mean, whatever road there was, ends on the beach at the Red Sea. <laughs> it would seem that the presence of God leading them had got lost. That's what it looked like. God's got lost. And here they are, stranded. I mean, just suddenly, bam, they're looking at the Red Sea with nowhere to turn and nowhere to go. That would have been bad enough, but of course, you could always do a U-turn and try and find your way out of here. But it's worse than that, because in the weeks that they have been traveling thus, back in Egypt, Pharaoh has now come back to his focus. He has been in a period of mourning because of his firstborn son dying on the night of the Passover. But the period of mourning ends and Pharaoh emerges and he is a man in rage because not only has he lost all of his slave power, that, that was bad enough for the Pharaoh. But can, can, you, can you get inside his mind the wounded pride that this man has been outwitted by Moses and by this God that Moses said he represented? And he, Pharaoh, has been made to look a helpless fool in front of his people. His honor is at stake. His 
pride demands revenge. That man is angry. And so he gets together what I guess today we'd call special op. They, they, they were sort of your Navy SEALs. They were your Marines. They were, they were his crack fighting force. And he says, we are going to pursue these people. And we are forever going to avenge ourselves and to teach them a lesson. And so off they go following the very obvious trail that these people have left in the desert. And so all that comes together at the same time. They're facing the Red Sea. And again, I remind you, led there specifically by the cloud of the presence of God. And behind them on the horizon, they see the cloud of dust as Pharaoh and his crack forces are coming to get them. That's the situation. An impossible, an impossible situation. You do understand. You can't easily hide three million people. On top of that, you can't take three million people through a very deep waterway. And you can't turn around and face Pharaoh because you are still essentially a bunch of slaves. You've, you, you can't imagine standing up to your masters and abusers. Pharaoh has got them caught like a rat in a trap. And it says, which is the first great word of the passage, it says they were afraid. Afraid. We, all of us, can relate to them. These are not odd characters. We can all relate to being cornered in what to every thought I have in my head, to every piece of reason and logic, I'm trapped. I can't get out of this. We're going down. All my ancestors would join in one voice to say, you're finished. And as they look at that impending cloud of dust on the horizon coming toward them, they have this emotion that we call fear. It is that dread, you know, that sinking feeling it's more than sinking, it's descent into death kind of feeling. The dread of coming hurt. You know it's coming. You're stealing yourself for the pain. It's coming. Harm, destruction is coming. It's on the horizon. And that dread takes a hold of us in the very heart of our being and it moves out sending our emotions into a meltdown and sending our thoughts into paralysis and it affects even our bodies so we speak of it as as a knot in our stomach it's it's the feeling that that our innards 
have tied in knots. Sometimes our very flesh would begin to tremble. A cold sweat forms on the brow. Sometimes it runs down our back. Sometimes it even affects the stability of our hair. Yes, you know what I'm talking about. This is fear. Fear written large. And fear is very contagious. It's much more contagious than the flu. And let a few people experience this kind of fear and they can spread it through a multitude. And here they are, three million people and they are gripped by fear. They're in terror of the coming armies of Pharaoh. What is fear, though? What is it? Analyze it. Fear. This might come strange to some of you, but fear is in the same family as faith. Yes, you heard me correctly. Fear is having faith in some hostile power whether invested in a block of persons such as this, or it could be invested in one person, but it is faith. Yes, faith in the power of the hostile person or persons who are seeking my harm or my destruction in some way or another. It is faith in the forces of nature that we believe are now gathered to destroy us. We believe in the person. We believe in the force of whatever it is that is coming to destroy. In fact, in a dictionary, whether you're looking at Webster's Dictionary here in the States or the Oxford Dictionary in the UK or wherever, fear, its major meaning in a dictionary, this would surprise again, is to stand in awe of, wonder. It's the, it's the same word that you use for worship. In fact, that is a meaning given to this word in the dictionary. Reverence or worship, to give honor to, to respect. Fear in itself, the word fear is a neutral word. For you can have fear of those who seek your damage and even death, or you can use that same word to describe your adoration and worship of God. Because I say again, it is faith. And if I believe in the power of the hostile force, that indeed it is going to achieve its malignant end of destroying me, then fear has produced what we call afraid and terrified and dread. But if my fear is directed toward the Lord, I stand in awe of him and his love and his covenant promises and his limitless power. And I honor him and respect him above those that seek my harm. Then I have peace, even joy. Does that make sense? So, so fear 
or faith in the one who seeks my destruction, it gives you that mental paralysis. You know, there's no rational thoughts. You, you, your, your head begins to race in all different directions at the same time. Your, your, your thoughts are in chaos. Your imagination has hundreds of variations on what could be, or might be, or probably will be. And so you're constantly now imagining that this, this honor and respect and faith that you have in your sworn enemy now produces this chaos it's actually a paralysis because the the mind is thinking so insanely that it it might as well be paralyzed. It's it's not doing anything constructive, and your imagination now is filled with, with a hundred horror movies in which, in every one of them, you you are destroyed. And that, in turn, releases into your body waves of toxic energy that can actually be registered, and, and they will actually destroy your physical body. And I used the expression a moment ago, an emotional meltdown. That actually is how the scripture describes uh, this kind of fear. Uh, you'll read it in some of your older versions where they translate it straight out of the original Hebrew. And it says their hearts melted within them. They feel that there's nothing stable left inside. They're just melting like wax before a flame. You know, this, this, when, when you're like this, you're like a ship in a storm in the middle of the ocean without an anchor and you feel some demon has taken over being captain of the ship. And their reaction, number one, it says they cried to the Lord. But the Lord didn't seem to be very impressed with that. In fact, he told them later on to stop it. And I, I will simply comment on that by saying if that's our condition, when we cry to the Lord, we are not, in fact, praying. We are just screaming our terror and therefore our unbelief in the Lord and our faith in the enemy, we are screaming that at God. That's not prayer. That's not prayer. Prayer arises out of a heart that knows you are my Father and you are in heaven and the honor and the glory belong to you and so on. It begins with however weak it might be, but it begins by an expectancy of God and not of the enemy and that's why I turn to him. And I know that they were not really praying because as soon as they talk to Moses that's when they reveal their heart completely when they talk to Moses listen to me carefully they reveal that because of their fear they cannot or rather will not yes that's a better word will not face what is 
Now, hang with me here. This is very important. Although we're very aware of when we're afraid, we are not so aware that that fear will lead us to refusing to acknowledge and face what is. Now, I suppose taken to the extreme, this would be denial. But well, I'm not talking about denial. They, they knew full well they were facing the Red Sea and Pharaoh was behind them, and they weren't denying that. What, what I mean by refusing to face what is... Um, what do they do? They, they start blaming Moses for bringing them here. They, they blame their own elders and, in fact, themselves for having ever listened to Moses. They're, they're basically saying we must have been absolutely stupid to listen to you in the first place with all your stupid dreams and imaginations about freedom. We told you, we told you when you first came into Egypt, we told you there's no way we're going to get out of here. We're slaves, now get used to it. But you kept on and kept on and talking about a delivering God. Stupid idea. Only a fool would have uprooted themselves from Egypt and believed what you were saying. It was madness for us to follow you. That is, they refuse to look at what is. And they do so by going back to what, what is fact now. It's, it's carved in history. They did listen to Moses eventually, and, and God did deliver them. And they did follow not only Moses, but the presence of God out of Egypt. They did, they did, they did. And now they're just vomiting out on Moses all of their rage and blame. I mean, somebody's got to be blamed and so they're not looking at this situation head on, but they're going back and they're blaming Moses and they're blaming their elders for listening. They're blaming themselves for listening. And they're saying it would have been so much better to stay in Egypt. Oh, we had such a marvelous time as slaves. And now you're bringing us out here to die in the desert. If only. If only we had stayed. See, while you're saying if only, as long as you're saying he's to blame, she's to blame, it's his fault. As long as all that's going on, um, you're not present to your situation. You, you've escaped it. You, you've momentarily forgotten it by going back into the past and wallowing in, why, if only, and why is this happening to us? Why did this have to happen to us? And that builds into a rage, and they're in the mood to lynch Moses. See the stupidity of it. Their worst enemy is coming at them, and they now are turning to Moses and saying, you're the worst enemy. And they're defining themselves. They're now looking at themselves 
by their racing thoughts, they see themselves as helpless victims of the events. In fact, if you followed me in the last few minutes, they, they saw themselves as victims of God's love. Yes, I mean, it's God's love that came into Egypt to get them. And, and now they're, they're describing themselves as victims of that love. If God hadn't done that, we wouldn't be in this mess. Because that's so stupid when you say it, isn't it? I mean, the God who led them here is surely the God who is going to deliver them. But they didn't see that. They were victims of God's power. If he hadn't done all those plagues in Egypt, we wouldn't be here. Oh, poor us, poor us. Self-pity, victim, avoidance of looking at the situation where I am. And what's their expectancy? Oh, they've got faith, all right. They are people of faith that they believe that they're going to die here in the wilderness. They are certain that Pharaoh's army is going to just push them all into the sea and they're either going to be close enough to the sea to be drowned in the sea or they'll be crushed and trampled by all those behind them and if if they miss that then uh, pharaoh will kill us and and we're just headed for graves in the wilderness and if, if, we, if we should escape altogether, well, we'll be homeless and starve under the blazing sun. I mean, it's, wherever we look, it, I am marked for death. I am marked for the loss of everything, for starvation and homelessness at the best. I'm marked to be a loser, a has-been. Yeah. And then comes the command through Moses, do not fear. And of course, I could repeat that command, I don't know how many times through the scripture. I mean, how many times in the scripture have you read? Fear not. Do not fear. Or even Jesus, when he spoke to the disciples in, in that tsunami that was happening on Galilee. Do you remember when they woke him up and his first words were, why are you afraid? It becomes very obvious from scripture. And this, this could change your life if it already hasn't. That fear is not natural to a human. Jesus showed us what a true human really is. Jesus didn't only reveal God, he revealed to us what a true human was created to be. That's another story, but it's true. Fear is not a natural to a human. Fear is part of the brokenness of the human race. Fear is part of a human race under sin. It's not natural to us. And so, do not fear. That's a command. It's in the imperative. It means, do not fear, and I mean that right now. Stop fearing. 
So that tells me, especially if I'm a person within the covenant of God's love in Christ Jesus, we are responsible for what we choose to fear. Right? I mean, if the Lord says to these terrified people who are just going crazy in their head, do not fear. Either God is a monster who is cruelly teasing the people and telling them to do something that's impossible, or this is a logical command that comes from the love of God and tells me you are responsible for what you choose to fear. See, the response today toward a person who is in that situation is often sympathy. Oh, poor you, I understand what you're going through. I I understand how you feel. Rarely would we come to people in this situation and say, do not fear. Uh, They would look at us cross-eyed. Do not fear in this situation. You know... The Lord doesn't send in crisis counselors. He simply gives them a command to be immediately obeyed. So, if I understand it, that God is love, and when he commands us, it's not to our hurt, but it's to our salvation. And so when he commands them to stop fear, he is saying, come out of the lie. Come out of these darkened fantasies of death. Come out of thoughts that are out of control and imaginations that are reproducing themselves like poisonous rats. Come to life. Do not fear. There is another way to live, and it's your choice. It's your choice to transfer your fear from the Egyptians to the Lord. Have you been following me on that idea that I've been saying all the way along? See, this is what that expression in the Old Testament means, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not being scared witless about God. The fear of the Lord is to stand in awe and wonder of his love and to believe that he is all power in his love for me and he is my protector and he is my provider and therefore I give him honor and praise and worship. That's the fear of the Lord as opposed to the fear of my enemy when I cower and stand in awe and wonder before his power to destroy me. So David said, and this is just a couple of verses, I could repeat this, it's full, the Bible is full of it, but this one, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Did you notice that? When I am afraid, said David, I will, that's a choice, that's an action of transferring faith 
in that which would destroy me to my rest, my trust, faith in the one who is my life. Or again, David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Notice it again. It's the choice. Please, this this could be the most important thing I've said this year. I, I feel it as I'm saying it. It's, it's a child. We, 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 we're not just, you know, what is it, carried along by every wind and every current on the river of life. No, we, we own our life and we choose. I will not fear the enemy. I choose with intention to place my fear in the Lord. My, my trust, my hope, my expectancy in the Lord. It's an intentional, that is, it's just not by default. It's not because I have a, a fuzzy, nice thought. It is with intention. While my heart is tripping and while the knot in my stomach is getting tighter, I, at the center of my being, with intention, choose to leap into his love, to leap into his wisdom and power. And really and truly, that is holy logic. I say it again, if, if the God who had performed the ten plagues to bring them out of Egypt, the God who had brought them out of Egypt and led them with his immediate presence, don't you think he's going to finish the job? What insanity is it that says he's going to abandon me now or to bring it up to date? He who spared not his own son, but in limitless love for you, that son took on our very hell and darkness became sin for us, performed a cosmic rescue operation, and by the shedding of his blood brought us out through resurrection into life. Do you think he's going to abandon you now? What madness is that thinking, you say? The God who spoke a word that was backed up by covenant blood in which God swore by himself, which means he said, God will cease to exist if I don't keep this word. Do you think he's going to not keep it now, in whatever situation you are now in? See, this, what I've called the transfer of fears, the transfer of faith, let me say what it isn't. It's not fighting thoughts or refusing them. It's not saying, I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. I will not be. No, no, no. I will not. I will not think that thought. If you do that, your, your thoughts will have twins and triplets. Now that, that's, that's a work of the flesh trying to handle this. 
Nor is it, I'm going to try and have faith. I'm going to try and have faith. Because faith is not merely a mental exercise whereby you think faith now. Nor do you try to now analyze. You're trying to quieten down and analyze this situation and say, now why does this happen to me? Nor do you say, and this is of tremendous importance, nor do you say, now what is it that God is going to do? No, you don't have a clue what God is going to do. These people who are told these words, never in their wildest dreams could they have imagined what was about to happen. That the Red Sea would open up and they would go on through it. No, they never dreamed that. Never, 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 never. No. Please hear me. I'm not telling you to fight your thoughts and say, I won't think that. I'm going to think faith. I'm going to think faith. No, no, no. That's a work of the flesh. Nor do you say, now, I believe that God will do it this way. Because he did it this way for a neighbor. I read in a book when he did it this way. No, please, that's not faith. That's trying to tie God to your agenda. Put God into your template of deliverance. What is faith? Again, back to David, when he said, the Lord is my, and then he filled in the blanks, the strength, the Lord is my deliverer, which is what they've been talking about here, or the Lord is my salvation, which is what they're talking about here. The Lord is my, and the whole thing is that is. The Lord the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is. I can't think, I can't think God's love. I can't think how he will deliver or what his plans are. I can't think it, it's not my business. I is it. It is so. Then I rest and relax into him. And he sort of tells us how to do that, or at least the action there to take. But again, let me emphasize it would it's their choice and they is into it, rather try and not think this and begin to think that. It, it, it says, and Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That word, stand still, I'm reading from the New King James, and a better translation, if you really want to, it is stand still. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's a way of saying it from the original language that I believe really puts it over better. It means to present yourself. It means to take a firm stand to be where you're supposed to be. Do you remember when you were in school, at least? Maybe it doesn't happen in the States. When I was in school in England and they were, you, you would be present in class at eight o'clock in the morning. And the teacher would then call out your name. 
the names of all the class. And when she called out your name, you said present. That's exactly what this idea is. You are present. You are there. You be where you are supposed to be. You are present at a location. And you're not planning to run out of the door. So it has the idea of firmness in it. You are present and you plan to stay there. It's stand firm. Be present. See, you're off in the past. You're, you're avoiding today. Well, he is saying, stand now, present to being present here. Right in this situation. Which means you will be present to the God who is there. Present to the God who is always present to you. Remember, the cloud of God's presence was right there at the Red Sea. He led them here. Be present to him. Be present to what he's up to. Be present to your covenant union. And I say to you and I as believers under the new covenant, be present to who we are. Not flitting off here into the past or flitting off to the future. And saying, what is that? I wonder if only, and and who's to blame, who's to blame, who's to blame, and what's going to happen? And Like a jolly butterfly of the darkness, going from plant to plant, God says, stand firm, come and stand present to this moment. You could almost say, it means as far as all that going back to the past and to the future, he's saying, shut up. Be still. Be present. Get it? You're here. You're now. Red Sea, Pharaoh. But in the middle of it all, I'm here. And we are in covenant union. Be present to who you are. That's basically what it means. It's the same idea that Jesus used in Matthew 6 when uh, he he is speaking of uh, all our material needs, you know, where where we're going to live, how we get our food, get our clothes, uh, you know, what shall I wear, what shall I eat, where where shall we live, will there be enough money for tomorrow? You know, read Matthew 6 at the end part of the chapter. And, And Jesus' response to that is, in the actual words he spoke, is take no thought. Very interesting. Very interesting. Because that's what they were doing. They were taking thought all over the place. He said, take no thought. Take, and more modern translations say, be anxious for nothing. But I think take no thought gets to the heart of it. Because anxiety is a gazillion thoughts. And, and I, using God's words, say to my spinning thoughts, shut up. Be present to the God who swore by himself that he would never leave me nor forsake me. Be present to God. He knows your situation. And he's the one who delights to deliver you out of impossible situations. 
which of course is the meaning of the word salvation. Salvation is a deliverance out of an impossible situation that only God could do. If, if humans could be involved, we wouldn't use the word salvation. There'd be other words. Salvation is a word that means a deliverance affected by God because only God could do it. And it's a deliverance. It's a bringing you out of. It's a bringing you into harmony and peace and wholeness. And so we place ourselves present to him. You know what I mean? When all this is happening and the, the pressure and the arrows of the enemy hurling in your mind and setting you on fire and you deliberately be present to the God who loves you. It's as if you say to yourself something like this. You say, I, I stand in Christ who is in the Father, my protector, my provider, my wisdom, my strength. And I stand there in the face of everything that I hear, everything that I see, all that my senses are reporting to me, all my thoughts, everything that my humanness calls logic and common sense and reason. In the face of all that, I choose to trust that you are love, that you are good, that you are wise, and you are limitlessly committed to me. I choose to trust that you are now, carrying now, in the middle of this mess, you are carrying out your love plans for me. This that the enemy has done, you mean it for good. I choose to rest in, to accept your covenant word, all your promises, without any questions, without any debate. I trust you that it is so and that you watch over your word to do it. I am committed to you. That's the essence of being still, standing firm. And I'm to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. This word accomplish, which I say again is a good enough word, but sometimes just to go see the meaning of the word, it can open it up to us. The word accomplish there in the Hebrew language is the same word that was used in Genesis 2 where God took that which he had created in Genesis 1 and now he molds it and fashions it and makes it into whatever he wants. It's, it's, there are two words. The one is create, which means God calls something out of nothing. And then there's this word, which means 
to create out of something that is existing, to take what is existing and make it something. And so this word means God's making something here. It means God is at work. It was used a lot of um, sculptors or carpenters or artists as they took their material, whatever it was, whether it was clay or wood or paint, and, and, and they squeezed it or they laid it down on a canvas or they sawed it. They, whatever it was, they fitted it all together toward a beautiful, harmonious end. Yeah, what he will accomplish. Believe me, Israel, while you're screaming like banshees, God here is fitting everything together. Oh boy, wait till you see what he's doing with this situation. He's the ultimate sculptor. He indeed is the carpenter. He's the artist supreme. And he's taken something here and something here and he's putting it together. And what he's about to do, he's about to pull the cover off his work of art and you will see he's been working for your ultimate salvation deliverance, being taken out of these claws of Pharaoh. You thought it was all over in Egypt. No, no, no. We're going to deal with Pharaoh there. We, we didn't deal with Pharaoh. We just shut him up in Egypt. Now we're going to deal with him. He said, take a good look at these Egyptians that are breathing fire down your neck. You won't see them ever again. You are going to die to Egypt and you are going to rise to a new life. I'm going to accomplish it. I've been working like a sculptor on this. It began way back there with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I, I was doing it there in Egypt and now you are going to be saved out of the jaws of your enemy. You're going to know what freedom really is. You're going to know what peace really is. What I am doing at this moment is bringing closure to your slavery. What I'm doing right now is to bring all my covenant promises out of the realm of theory and writing them into history. I'm going to give you a track record whereby you will tell your children's children's children of what happened here on the shores of the Red Sea. This moment of terror for you is really the arena in which I'm going to give you a track record of my love that you could never imagine in a thousand years. And then when all that was said and done, where are we here? Um, it says in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. Got nothing to do with your strength or power. And you shall hold your peace. Hold your peace. And that is the, the, the full word which is used where it says here, uh, stand still. Um, here it, it is be silent. Be silent. 
So stop your fear, stop your hysteria, stop the craziness in your head. And as I said, it's almost like saying, shut up, be silent. Focus on who he is. Focus on what he has sworn that he will do because of his love for you. It's interesting, and I'm watching my clock and I've only got minutes, but this word silent here, um, be quiet, hold your peace, is how this translation is. And I think your older version says, be silent. But the word there means, and I don't have time to go into the details, but this word means to plow, you know, with a plow, where you go into the earth and you turn the earth over by, by the plow. It also means to engrave when you put your engraving tool into the metal and you, you make a line in it. And what happens when you're plowing anyway, you put a seed into the turned earth. And in the silence of the earth, the seed grows out of its own innate life. So be present to God. Hear his word. And having brought to silence all that your head was spinning in, let the word, covenant word of your God be engraved into your very being. Let the plow of God in the silence open your heart to drop in his seed and let that seed, his word, grow for it has life within itself. Maybe we'll spend a lot more time on that idea. It's a great, great thought. But then he says, do it. Speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. But the only forward is the Red Sea. And they went forward and the sea opens before them. I suppose their faith developed in those last few moments because what I have read here from the scripture, all that took place just immediately before the sea opened. Maybe their faith was that as the sea opened, it would stay open long enough for them to get through. I, I don't know. It says in Hebrews 11, by faith they went through the Red Sea. And uh, they really did not believe God until they got their feet in the water. And then the sea opened. Um, which I find very comforting. That even when I am a basket case and I'm having a meltdown... And I have to listen to my own message on this. That he still opens the Red Sea. And tells me that with God there is nothing that is impossible. And so what, what do I bring this to you for? Because I believe that we are in times. We are in times. 
in every nation where I'm being listened to tonight. I am, we are in times that many a time look like Red Sea ahead and Pharaoh behind. There, there are events happening in our lives that for the most part we've never been here before, any more than any one of these people had ever been in a situation like this before. This time in which we live is the time in which God shall reveal himself. This is his arena where he shall show forth his glory as we have never dreamt it possible. And so I bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit that you shall walk in his love, walk in his peace, deeply rooted in his covenant character. So I bless you and so it is.